Let us pray. Now, God, we have read your word, and we ask that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. On these Sundays and Wednesdays of the past several weeks, we've been talking about the grace of God and how that is made manifest in our lives. We talked about the first three chapters of Ephesians being really a theological treatise on Paul's behalf to tell us who God is and who we are in relation to God. And the last three chapters are really the ethical outworking of that. Based on this theology, based on who God is and who he's created us to be, we will behave in this way. We've seen it over and over how the grace of God is, is a theme of Paul in this particular letter. So here in chapter 5, Paul begins to apply that grace to the most fundamental relationships that we have in our lives, those in our family, the relationships in our homes where we are formed and where we are shaped through the course of our lives, relationships of husbands and wives, of children and parents, mothers and fathers. Grace at home begins with a foundational commitment that we read in verse 21 of chapter 5 today. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's an assumption that, that Paul makes in writing this letter that the people who he's writing to are in Christ. That everyone has submitted their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ, then they would build those relationships with one another in their homes and in the church community. Our relationships in home are grounded in our relationship with Jesus Christ. They are not separated from it. It's the place where we primarily learn to be a disciple. If we love one another well at home, it is because we know that Jesus values you so highly and God gives you your, your worth. And if you matter that much to God, You'd better mean that much to me as well if I say that I follow him. Everything that follows in the succeeding verses of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 is commentary on, on that one verse. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Home is the place where we're shaped and molded as human beings and as Christians. Young Parker will be shaped and molded not only as a human being to grow in stature, but to grow as a child of God as well in this home. That is the calling of those promises that the Wagners made this morning. It's at home that we learn how to love other human beings, beginning with our families, or we don't learn to love other human beings, beginning with our families. It's one of the great tragedies of life when a child does not learn in his or her home what true love is and how that works in a family, much less the love of God. And for those who do not learn it when they are young at home, it's a lifelong challenge to find that love that they miss so early on in the patterns of their lives. It's a high calling to intentionally shepherd our families in ways that nurture them in the love of God. And the way that we love one another within our households then points them toward the one who is the head of the great family, our Lord God. It begins with marriage. Parents in the sanctuary today are online if you're joining us. 
The greatest gift that you can give your children is a strong and healthy and godly marriage. It is their place of stability in this world. It provides that stability on which a child can build their life. It provides a model of how to love other people sacrificially in the way of Jesus. In fact, marriage is not just for our children. Did you know that our marriages have a mission in this world? In Revelation 21 and even here in Ephesians chapter 5, we are told about that mission because we are embodying the bride of Christ. The way we love one another is a reflection of how God loves the church. What would somebody know about the way God loves the church by the way you love your wife or by the way you love your husband? It's a reasonable question to ask based on the text today. But the reality that we also have to come to terms with is that marriage is hard sometimes. Can I get an amen? Not a loud one, just in your heart, an unspoken amen. I know your marriages are perfect. We have to admit that though, don't we? When I was uh, having some relational issues back when I was in college, one of my great mentors, she's a woman in her, in her 80s now named Gladys Keating. She said, well, Owen, you know there's a difference between men and women and it's not just the plumbing. Those differences make it difficult sometimes. They make it a challenge in marriage and our own sin makes it a challenge in marriage sometimes as well to love one another as Christ has first loved us. I kind of love the way that Paul brings back that passage from God speaking in Genesis, when he says the two shall become one flesh. That is a process of a lifetime coming together and being one flesh and reflecting how God loves the church in our marriages. But Paul says that out loud here in chapter five. And then he says, this is a profound mystery. And there are some days when I could just go sit on the back porch when we're just at a spot in our marriage. And I was like, this is a profound mystery, isn't it? How in the world is this supposed to work? Because the problem is I'm a mess. We're all messes. We're all broken. We're all sinful. We're all lost in our own ways. But God offers us this gift of grace in marriage, if we will but receive it. One of the things that we have to employ is a central virtue of the Christian life being humility. Humility is indispensable to a healthy and godly marriage. Our life begins and it ends with submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we remember that C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not beating yourself down, but it is putting another or others before your own interests and needs in life. Marriage is a primary place of understanding and growing in the truth of humility and the love of God. When we make our vows to one another in the covenant of marriage, those vows become promises that then shape us for the rest of our lives. They really make us who we will become in some measure. When we pledge to love one another in plenty and in want and joy and in sorrow and sickness and in health, 
as long as we both shall live, that requires humility because it puts the other before me. There's nothing in the traditional wedding vows that includes as long as you make me happy or as long as I am attracted to you. The covenant of marriage is a mirror of the covenant that God makes with his church of faithfulness that requires humility within our lives as we bind ourselves to one another. When I was a single man, I really highly valued simplicity. Y'all know I didn't get married till I was 39. And I just thought, simplify your life, simplify your life. And, and then I got married. And then we had kids. Simplicity isn't even a faint memory anymore. It's just gone conceptually for me. And I tell people that life is infinitely more complicated than it was when I was a single man, but it is infinitely better as well. The complexities that come with being married and being a parent are part of the blessings of God and how he sustains us along the way. Giving another person a vote in your life is an act of submission. It is an act of humility to say that their opinion matters over you as well. Too often we enter marriage with a vision of what is to come that is unrealistic and even unbiblical, even in the church many times. We live by cliches like happy wife, happy life. And too often we believe that getting married will make us happy or fulfilled in and of itself in our lives. But friends, we quickly find out that that's not always the case, is it? Not every moment is wedded bliss. Stanley Hauerwas cuts through the facade when he writes this. Destructive to marriage is a self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become happy and whole. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we just look closely enough, we will find that right person. The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know who we marry or we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person just to give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing that it is means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom we find ourselves married. That's from Stanley Hauerwas and Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, has a chapter that quotes Hauerwas's work here. And I actually copied it as an article and handed it to a number of couples when I was doing premarital counseling. And they would just look at the headline you never marry the right person. And they would kind of freak out, which was fun. No, I, think, I think she is the right one. That's not one. Okay, okay, yeah. Let's talk about this. But we do. When we make the promises of marriage, it changes us because our core commitments in life have changed in that moment. 
the things that will drive us and shape us going forward through the course of our days. It changes us in that very moment, much less are we different people five years, 10 years, God willing, 50 years down the line. We're gonna be different than those people who stood at the altar and said, I do, so many years before. Marriage is a place where we are learning how to love someone who is changing because we all change through the course of our lives. But in that loving, we learn also how to share the grace of God that he has first given to us and we may share with one another. Grace is an indispensable element of a healthy and godly marriage. Tim Keller writes that in order to understand God's design for marriage, we have to first understand the gospel itself. And the gospel, as he says, is this, that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever, uh, ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are loved and accepted in Jesus Christ more than we ever dared hope. Is that true of our marriages as well? Are we really worse at it than we ever thought was possible? And yet, we are more loved by our wives and our husband than we could have ever dreamed of. That's that picture of God's love when marriage is right. The only way the gospel can work is by grace. And the only way that marriage can work is by grace. By understanding that we have received the grace of God and that we are now compelled to share that with those whom we love. Because guess what? We're all a mess. But when we create space for one another, every time we forgive one another, every time we ask forgiveness of one another, every time we bear one another's burdens, we share grace with one another. That some distant echo of the grace that our Father has given us in Jesus Christ. That's what love means in a Christian sense in marriage. And women and men do this in unique ways. Paul talks toward this reality. He turns to wives and it's important to remember that when Paul wrote this letter, he was writing in a time that did not respect any of the rights of women. Indeed, it was a time and a place where they were second-class citizens and counted as property of men under the law. So the fact that he even addresses women directly in this letter speaks to the importance in the early church of the place of women in those places, the place of the downtrodden who were brought up into freedom. And while there are distinctions made here about the manner in which wives and husbands are subject to one another, the overriding theme of this whole section is mutuality, of giving of ourselves in favor of the other. While there, when wives are counseled to be subject to their husbands here, husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself for her. He sacrificed his life that she be made whole and holy. The call to marriage is not the call to a pursuit of happiness or fulfillment. The call to marriage is the call to lay down our lives for one another. And is that the way we are approaching our marriages today? 
to the glory of God? Do we approach it as an opportunity to lay down our lives in humility and in grace so that others can see a picture of how God loves his church in Jesus Christ? Indeed, someone said way before me, marriage is not designed to make us happy, it's designed to make us holy. And it functions most highly when each of us involved in marriage is intentionally working toward the holiness of ourselves and of the other. When that is our greatest pursuit in our relationship is that each of us is drawing closer to the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Each Marriage is bound to one another in sacrificial love. And as we read at the end of chapter 5 in the final verse, Paul says, Each of you must love your wife as you love your own body. And wives, you must respect your husbands. Love and respect goes a long way because it's God's prescription for our marriages and for our lives. The relationship of husband and wife is the core of the home. But the relationships of parents and children are addressed at the beginning of chapter 6, which follows on from the preceding passage on marriage in chapter 5. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I think that was the first verse that my parents required my brothers and me to memorize when we were kids. But we also learned the next one. Dad, it says, provoke not your children to wrath. You're provoking me to wrath. Children with just enough biblical knowledge are dangerous. Children learn to love in their homes. And this learning is not just for the sake of the other people dwelling in that house, but it's also a training center for the love of God. In our homes, as we learn to honor our fathers and our mothers, as we learn to be obedient to our fathers and our mothers, it is a training center to learn to honor God with our lives, to be obedient to God in our lives, to submit to God's will in our lives and not just what we want to do all the time. Children begin learning this in their homes. Children must learn the value of obeying their parents as a means of learning to be obedient to God as well, further down the line. And we as parents need to take this seriously we need to take seriously the place that we have that is reflecting the very presence of God in the lives of our children. It's a frightening and heavy weight, but it is a glorious gift that we are granted. The fifth commandment calls on us to honor our fathers and mothers. And it's hard enough when you're a kid, much less when you're an adult, right? Because life sometimes gets complicated. Parents and children, their relationships sometimes get complicated. Where is the grace in that place? When we have the grace of extending forgiveness, of receiving healing from God, that is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our relationships with our parents and with our children. None of us is perfect in those, but by God's grace, maybe we point toward the one who is. Our family lives are profound, living, flesh and blood parables of the love of God in this world. 
And one of my favorites is one that I share at most of the weddings that I do. My first church was over in the old town of Wake Forest, North Carolina. And one of the couples in that church was Bill and Laverne Powell. Bill and Laverne were a retired couple. He was a quiet Southern guy. And Laverne was wide open, as they say. They invited me over for lunch one day in their backyard and told me about when Laverne had experienced brain surgery for a tumor some years earlier. And when she had come home from the hospital, the recovery didn't go quite as they'd hoped. In fact, she wasn't really regaining her function of being able to dress herself or even get out of bed or feed herself. And so they went in for a second surgery and that was more successful. And when she came home, Bill was there taking care of her again. And one day as they were taking a walk, she was in her wheelchair and she said, Bill was telling her about all the things that had to be done for her during her previous stint at home. And she said, well, who did all those things? And he said, well, I did. And as only Laverne would have, she slammed down the handbrake on her wheelchair and spun around and looked at him and said, Bill Powell, and exactly how long were you planning on doing that? And Bill said, I don't know. I never thought about it. The kind of love that doesn't count the cost, that never thinks about it, that just lives up to the promises that we make is that love that is reflective of the love of God. May our families be beacons of God's love to a world in need. Let us pray. And so God, today we do come before you humbly as those who have received the gift of your grace. Lord, we can make a mess of our families sometimes and sometimes our families can make a mess of us. I pray for those who didn't learn about love in their family growing up. For those who didn't have a mother and a father to care for them and to model the love that you have for your children. I pray for healing, Lord, for the ones even in this sanctuary today who are broken and lost because of those long-standing wounds. I pray for your healing spirit to be upon them. And God, I pray that you would empower us as we go out from this place to truly be different to stop chasing mere happiness and fulfillment and instead follow your example to lay down our lives for one another. I pray for the husbands and the wives within this congregation that you would give them grace and humility to reflect your love. I pray for the parents and the children that the children would honor their parents, that the parents would honor their children in the way that they raise them as your children. We thank you for the gift of these little ones, one of whom we've received today visibly, Lord. We know they don't belong to us, they belong to you. And you trust us with this great charge. 
God, we love you. Give us grace for that to be reflected in our homes and in our families and in our marriages. And may we give you all praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.